Book Five, Chapter Thirty Three of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Five, Chapter Thirty Three. But Robert was for some time in finding his opening, in realizing any fraction of his dream. At first, he tried work under the broad church vicar to whom Gray had introduced him. He undertook some rent collecting and some evening lectures on elementary science to boys and men. But after a while he began to feel his position false and unsatisfactory. In truth, his opinions were in the main identical with those of the vicar under whom he was acting. But Mr. Vernon was a broad churchman, belonged to the church reform movement, and thought it absolutely necessary to keep things going, and by a policy of prudent silence and gradual expansion from within, to save the great plant of the establishment from falling wholesale into the hands of the high churchman. In consequence, he was involved, as Robert held, in endless contradictions and practical falsities of speech and action. His large church was attended by a handful of some fifty to a hundred persons. Vernon could not preach what he did believe, and would not preach, more than what was absolutely necessary, what he did not believe. He was hard-working and kind-hearted, but the perpetual divorce between thought and action which his position made inevitable was constantly blunting and weakening all he did. His whole life, indeed, was one long waste of power, simply for lack of an elementary frankness. But if these became Robert's views as to Vernon, Vernon's feelings towards Ellesmere after six weeks' acquaintance was not less decided. He was constitutionally timid, and he probably divined in his new helper a man of no ordinary calibre, whose influence might very well turn out some day to be of the incalculably diffusive kind. He grew uncomfortable, begged Ellesmere to beware of any direct religious teaching, talked in warm praise of a policy of omissions, an equally warm denunciation of anything like a policy of attack. In short, it became plain that two men, so much alike and yet so different, could not long cooperate. However, just as the fact was being brought home to Ellesmere, a friendly chance intervened. Hugh Flaxman, the Leyburn's new acquaintance and Lady Helen's brother, had been drawn to Ellesmere at first sight, and a meeting or two, now at Lady Charlotte's, now at the Leyburn's, had led both men far on the way to a friendship, of Hugh Flaxman himself more hereafter. At present, all that need be recorded is that it was at Mr. Flaxman's house, overlooking St. James's Park, Robert first met a man who was to give him the opening for which he was looking. Mr. Flaxman was fond of breakfast parties a la Rogers, and on the first occasion when Robert could be induced to attend one of these functions, he saw opposite to him what he supposed to be a lad of twenty, a young slip of a fellow, whose sallies of fun and invincible good humour attracted him greatly. Sparkling brown eyes, full lips rich in humour and pugnacity, look as cruel as they were laid in pressa, the same look of wonderly activity too, in spite of his short stature and dainty make, as Chaucer lends his squire. The type was so fresh and pleasing that Robert was more and more held by it, especially when he discovered to his bewilderment that the supposed stripling must be from his talk a man quite as old as himself, an official besides, filling what was clearly some important place in the world. He took his full share in the politics and literature started at the table, and presently, when conversation fell on the proposed municipality of for London, said things to which the whole party listened. Robert's curiosity was aroused, and after breakfast he questioned his host, and was promptly introduced to, 
Mr. Murray Edwards. Whereupon it turned out that this baby-faced sage was filling a post in the work of which perhaps few people in London could have taken so much interest as Robert Ellesmere. Fifty years before, a wealthy merchant who had been one of the chief pillars of London Unitarianism had made his will and died. His great warehouses lay in one of the eastern riverside districts of the city, and in his will he endeavoured to do something according to his lights for the place in which he had amassed his money. He left a fairly large bequest wherewith to build and endow a Unitarian chapel and found certain Unitarian charities, in the heart of what was even then one of the densest and most poverty-stricken of London parishes. For a long time, however, chapel and charities seemed likely to rank as one of the idle freaks of religious wealth and nothing more. Unitarianism of the old sort is perhaps the most illogical creed that exists, and certainly it has never been the creed of the poor. In old days it required the presence of a certain arid stratum of the middle classes to live and thrive at all. The stratum was not to be found in R, which rejoiced instead in the most squalid types of poverty and crime, types wherewith the mild, shrivelled Unitarian minister had about as much power of grappling as a poet laureate with a Trafalgar Square socialist. Soon after the erection of the chapel, there arose that shaking of the dry bones of religious England which we call the Tractarian movement. For many years the new force left R quite undisturbed. The parish church droned away. The Unitarian minister preached decorously to empty benches, knowing nothing of the agitations outside. At last, however, towards the end of the old minister's life, a powerful church of the new type, staffed by friends and pupils of Pusey, rose in the centre of R and the little Unitarian chapel was for a time more snuffed out than ever, a fate which this time it shared dismally with the parish church. As generally happened, however, in those days, the proceedings at this new and splendid St. Wilfrid's was not long in stirring up the Protestantism of the British rough, the said Protestantism being always one of the finest excuses for brickbats of which the modern Cockney is master. The parish lapsed into a state of private war, hectic clergy heading exasperating processions of intoning defiant litanies on the one side, mobs, rotten eggs, dead cats, and blatant Protestant orators on the other. The war went on practically for years, and while it was still raging, the minister of the Unitarian chapel died, and the authorities concerned chose in his place a young fellow, the son of a Bristol minister, a Cambridge man besides, as chance would have it, of brilliant attainments, and unusually commended from many quarters, even including some church ones of the liberal kind. This curly-haired youth, as he was then in reality, and as to his own quaint vexation he went on seeming to be up to quite middle age, had the wit to perceive at the moment of his entry on the troubled scene that behind all the mere brutal opposition to the new church, and in contrast with the sheer indifference of three-fourths of the district, there was a small party consisting of an aristocracy of the artisans, whose protest against the Puseyite doings was of a much quieter, sterner sort, and amongst whom the uproar had merely roused a certain crude power of thinking. He threw himself upon this element, which he rather divined than discovered, and it responded. He preached a simple creed, drove it home by pure and generous living, he lectured, taught, brought down workers from the West End, and before he had been five years in harness, and not only made himself a power in R, was beginning to be heard of and watched with no small interest by many outsiders. This was the man on whom Robert had now stumbled. 
Before they had talked twenty minutes, each was fascinated by the other. They said good-bye to their host, and wandered out together into St. James's Park, where the trees were white with frost, and an orange sun was struggling through the fog. Here, Murray Edwards poured out the whole story of his ministry to attentive ears. Robert listened eagerly. Unitarianism was not a familiar subject of thought to him. He never dreamt of joining the Unitarians, and was indeed long ago convinced that in the beliefs of a Channing no one once fairly started on the critical road could rationally stop. That common thinness and aridity, too, of the Unitarian temper had weighed with him. But here, in the person of Murray Edwards, it was as though he saw something old and threadbare revivified. The young man's creed, as he presented it, had grace, persuasiveness, even unction, and there was something in his tone of mind which was like a fresh wind blowing over the fevered places of the other's heart. They talked long and earnestly, Edwards describing his own work and the changes creeping over the modern Unitarian body, Elsmere saying little, asking much. At last the young man looked at Elsmere with eyes of bright decision. "'You cannot work with the church,' he said. "'It is impossible.' You will only wear yourself out in efforts to restrain what you could do infinitely more good, as things stand now, by pouring out. Come to us. I'll put you in the way. You should be hampered by no pledges of any sort. Come and take the direction of some of my workers. We've all got our hands more than full. Your knowledge, your experience, would be invaluable. There's no other opening like it in England just now for men of your way of thinking, and mine. Come. Who knows what we may be putting our hands to— what fruit may grow from the smallest seed? The two men stopped beside the lightly frozen water. Robert gathered that in this soul, too, there had risen the same large, intoxicating dream of a reorganised Christendom, a new, wide-spreading shelter of faith for discouraged, browbeaten men, as in his own. "'I will,' he said briefly, after a pause, his own look kindling. "'It is the opening I have been pining for. I will give you all I can, and bless you for the chance.' That evening Robert got home late, after a busy day full of various engagements. Mary, after some waiting for Fada, had just been carrying, protesting, red lips pouting, and fat legs kicking, off to bed. Catherine was straightening the room, which had been thrown into confusion by the child's romps. It was with an effort, for he knew it would be a shock to her, that he began to talk to her about the breakfast party at Mr. Flaxman's, and his talk with Murray Edwards but he had made it a rule with himself to tell her everything that he was doing, or meant to do. She would not let him tell her what he was thinking. But as much openness as there could be between them, there should be. Catherine listened, still moving about the while, the thin, beautiful lips becoming more and more compressed. Yes, it was hard to her, very hard. The people among whom she had been brought up, her father especially, would have held out the hand of fellowship to anybody of Christian people, but not to the Unitarian. No real barrier of feeling divided them from any orthodox dissenter, but the gulf between them and the Unitarian had been dug very deep by various forces, forces of thought originally, a strong habit and prejudice in the course of time. "'He's going to work with them now,' she thought bitterly. "'Soon he will be one of them, perhaps a Unitarian minister himself.' and for the life of her, as he told his tale, she could find nothing but embarrassed monosyllables, and still more embarrassed silences, wherewith to answer him. Till at last he too fell silent, 
feeling once more the sting of a now habitual discomfort. Presently, however, Catherine came to sit down beside him. She laid her head against his knee, saying nothing, but gathering his hand closely in both of her own. Poor woman's heart! One moment in rebellion, the next a suppliant. He bent down quickly and kissed her. "'Would you like?' he said presently, after both had sat silent a while in the firelight. "'Would you care to go to Madame de Netville's to-night?' "'By all means,' said Catherine, with a sort of eagerness. "'It was Friday she asked us for, wasn't it? "'We will be quick over dinner, and I will go and dress.' In the last ten minutes which Robert had spent with the squire in his bedroom on the Monday afternoon, when they were to have walked, Mr. Wendover had dryly recommended Ellesmere to cultivate Madame de Netville. He sat propped up in his chair, white, gaunt, and cynical, and this remark of his was almost the only reference he would allow to the Ellesmere move. "'You better go there,' he said huskily. "'It'll do you good. She gets the first-rate people, and she makes them talk, which Lady Charlotte can't. Too many fools at Lady Charlotte's. She waters the wine too much.' And he had persisted with the subject, using it, as Ellesmere thought, as a means of warding off other conversation. He would not ask Ellesmere's plans, and he would not allow a word about himself. There had been a heart attack, old Merrick thought, coupled with signs of nervous strain and excitement. It was the last ailment which evidently troubled the doctor most. But behind the physical breakdown there was, for Robert's sense, something else, a spiritual something, infinitely forlorn and piteous, which revealed itself wholly against the older man's will, and filled the younger with a dumb, helpless rush of sympathy. Since his departure, Robert had made the keeping up of his correspondence with the squire a binding obligation, and he was to-night chiefly anxious to go to Madame de Netville's that he might write an account of it to Muirwell. Still, the squire's talk, and his own glimpse of her at Muirwell, had made him curious to see more of the woman herself. The squire's way of describing her was always half-approving, half-sarcastic. Robert sometimes imagined that he himself had been at one time more under her spell than he cared to confess. If so, it must have been when she was still in Paris, the young English widow of a man of old French family, rich, fascinating, distinguished, and the centre of a small salon, admission to which was one of the social blue ribbons of Paris. Since the war of 1870, Madame de Netville had fixed her headquarters in London, and it was to her house in Hans Place that the squire wrote to her about the Ellesmeres. She owed Roger Wendover debts of various kinds, and she had an encouraging memory of the young clergyman on the terrace at Muirwell. So she promptly left her cards, together with the intimation that she was at home always on Friday evenings. "'I have never seen the wife,' she meditated, as her delicate jewelled hand drew up the window of the broom in front of the Ellesmeres' lodgings. "'But if she is the ordinary country clergyman's spouse, the squire, of course, would have given the young man a hint. But whether from oblivion, or from some instinct of grim humour towards Catherine, whom she had always vaguely disliked, the squire said not one word about his wife to Robert in the course of their talk of Madame de Netville. Catherine took pains with her dress, sorely wishing to do Robert credit. She put on one of the gowns she had taken to Muirwell when she married. It was black, simply made, and had been a favourite with both of them in the old surroundings. So they drove off to Madame de Netville's. Catherine's heart was beating faster than usual as she mounted the twisting stairs of the luxurious little house. 
All these new social experiences were a trial to her. But she had the vaguest, most unsuspicious ideas of what she was to see in this particular house. A long, low room was thrown open to them. Unlike most English rooms, it was barely, though richly, furnished. A Persian carpet of a self-coloured greyish-blue threw the gilt French chairs and the various figures sitting upon them into delicate relief. The walls were painted white, and had a few French mirrors and girandoles upon them, half a dozen fine French portraits, too, here and there, let into the wall in oval frames. The subdued light came from the white sides of the room, and seemed to be there solely for social purposes. You could hardly have read or written in the room, but you could see a beautiful woman in a beautiful dress there, and you could talk there, either tete-a-tete, -tete, or to the assembled company, to perfection, so cunningly was it all devised. When the Ellesmeres entered, there were about a dozen people present, ten gentlemen and two ladies. One of the ladies, Madame de Netteville, was lying back in the corner of a velvet divan placed against the wall, a screen between her and a splendid fire that threw its blaze out into the room. The other, a slim woman with closely curled fair hair and a neck abnormally long and white, sat near her, and the circle of men was talking indiscriminately to both. As the footman announced Mr. and Mrs. Ellesmere, there was a general stir of surprise. The men looked round. Madame de Netteville half rose with a puzzled look. It was more than a month since she had dropped her invitation. Then a flash, not altogether of pleasure, passed over her face, and she said a few hasty words to the woman near her, advancing the moment afterwards to give her hand to Catherine. "'This is very kind of you, Mrs. Ellesmere, to remember me so soon. I had imagined you were hardly settled enough yet to give me the pleasure of seeing you.' But the eyes fixed on Catherine, eyes which took in everything, were not cordial for all their smile. Catherine, looking up at her, was overpowered by her excessive manner, and by the woman's look of conscious sarcastic strength, struggling through all the outer softness of beauty and exquisite dress. "'Mr. Ellsbury, you will find this room almost as hot, I am afraid, as that afternoon on which we met last. Let me introduce you to Count Vilat, Mr. Ellsmere. Mrs. Ellsmere, will you come over here beside Lady Aubrey Willard?' Robert found himself bowing to a young diplomatist, who seemed to him to look at him very much as he himself might have scrutinised an inhabitant of New Guinea. Lady Aubrey made an imperceptible movement of her head as Catherine was presented to her, and Madame de Netteville, smiling and biting her lip a little, fell back into her seat. There was a faint odour of smoke in the room. As Catherine sat down, a young exquisite, a few yards from her, threw the end of a cigarette into the fire with a little sharp, decided gesture. Lady Aubrey also pushed away a cigarette-case which lay beside her hand. Everybody there had the air, more or less, of an habitué of the house, and when the conversation began again, the Ellesmeres found it very hard, in spite of certain perfunctory efforts on the part of Madame de Netteville, to take any share in it. "'Well, I believe the story about De Foray is true,' said the fair-haired young Apollo, who had thrown away his cigarette, lolling back in his chair. Catherine started, the little scene with Rose and Langham in the English rectory garden flashing incongruously back upon her. "'If you get it from the ferry, my dear Evershed,' said the ex-Tory minister, Lord Rupert, "'you may put it down as a safe lie. As for me, I believe she has a much shrewder eye to the main chance.' "'What do you mean?' said the other, raising astonished eyebrows. "'Well, it doesn't pay, you know, to write yourself down a fiend. Not quite.' 
"'What? You think it will affect her audiences? Well, that is a good joke,' said the young man, laughing immoderately, joined by several of the other guests. "'I don't imagine it will make any difference to you, my good friend,' returned Lord Rupert imperturbably. "'But the British public haven't got your nerve. They may take it awkwardly, but I don't say they will, when a woman who has turned her own young sister out of doors at night in St. Petersburg, so that ultimately, as a consequence, the girl dies, comes to ask them to clap her touching impersonations of injured virtue.' "'What has one to do with an actress's private life, my dear Lord Rupert?' asked Madame de Netville, her voice slipping with a smooth clearness into the conversation, her eyes darting light from under straight black brows. "'What indeed?' said the young man, who had begun the conversation with a disagreeable enigmatical smile, stretching out his hand for another cigarette, and drawing it back with a look under his drooped eyelids, a look of cold, impertinent scrutiny, at Catherine Ellesmere. "'Ah, oh, well, I don't want to be obtrusively moral, heaven forbid, but there is such a thing as destroying the illusion to such an extent that you injure your pocket. Desforêts is doing it, doing it actually in Paris, too.' There was a ripple of laughter. "'Paris and illusions? Oh, bon Dieu!' groaned young Evershed, when he had done laughing, laying meditative hands on his knees and gazing into the fire. "'I tell you, I've seen it.' said Lord Rupert, waxing combative, and slapping the leg he was nursing with emphasis. The last time I went to see Desforêts in Paris, the theatre was crammed, and the house, theatrically speaking, ice. They received her in dead silence. They gave her not one single recall, and they only gave her a clap that I can remember, and those two or three points in the play were clapped they positively must or burst. They go to see her, but they loathe her, and they let her know it. Bah! said his opponent. It is only because they are tired of her. Her vagaries don't amuse them any longer. They know them by heart. And by George, she has some pretty rivals too now, he added, reflectively, not to speak of the Bernhardt. Well, the Parisians can be shocked, said Count Villant, in excellent English, bending forward so as to get a good view of his hostess. They are just now especially shocked by the condition of English morals. The twinkle in his eye was irresistible. The men, understanding his reference to the avidity with which certain English aristocratic scandals had been lately seized upon by the French papers, laughed out. So did Lady Aubrey. Madame de Netville contented herself with a smile. "'They professed to be shocked, too, by Reynolds' last book,' said the editor from the other side of the room. "'Dear me,' said Lady Aubrey, with meditative scorn, fanning herself lightly the while a thin but extraordinarily graceful head and neck thrown out against the golden brocade of the cushion behind her. Uh, "'What so many of them feel in Reynolds' case, of course,' said Madame de Netville, "'is that every book he writes now gives a fresh opening to the enemy to blaspheme. Your eminent three-thinker can't afford just yet, in the present state of the world, to make himself socially ridiculous. The cause suffers.' "'Just my feeling,' said young Evershed calmly. Though I mayn't care a rap about him personally, I prefer that a man on my own front bed shouldn't make a public ass of himself if he can help it. Not for his sake, of course, but for mine." Robert looked at Catherine. She sat upright by the side of Lady Aubrey. Her face, of which the beauty to-night seemed lost in rigidity, pale and stiff. With a contradiction of heart, he plunged himself into the conversation. On his road home that evening he had found an important foreign telegram posted up at the small literary club to which he belonged since Oxford days. He made a remark about it now to Count Vielant, 
and the diplomatist, turning rather unwillingly to face his questioner, recognised that the remark was a shrewd one. Presently the young man's frank intelligence had told. On his way to and from the Holy Land three years before Robert had seen something of the East, and it so happened that he remembered the name of Count Wieland as one of the foreign secretaries of legation present at an official party given by the English ambassador at Constantinople, which he and his mother had attended on their return journey, in virtue of a family connection with the ambassador. All that he could glean from memory he made quick use of now, urged at first by the remorseful wish to make this new world into which he had brought Catherine less difficult than he knew it must have been during the last quarter of an hour. But after a while he found himself leading the talk of a section of the room, and getting excitement and pleasure out of the talk itself. Ever since that eastern journey he kept an eye on the subjects which had interested him then, reading in his rapid, voracious way all that came across him at Muirwell, especially in the squire's foreign newspapers and reviews, and storing it, when read, in a remarkable memory. Catherine, after the failure of some conversational attempts between her and Madame de Netteville, fell to watching her husband with a start of strangeness and surprise. She had scarcely seen him at Oxford among his eagles, and she had very rarely been present at his talks with the squire. In some ways, and owing to the instinctive reserves set up between them for so long, her intellectual knowledge of him was very imperfect. His ease, his resource among these men of the world, for whom, independent of all else, she felt a countrywoman's dislike, filled her with a kind of bewilderment. "'Are you new to London?' Lady Albury asked her presently, in that tone of absolute detachment from the person addressed which certain women manage to perfection. She too had been watching the husband, and the sight had impressed her with a momentary curiosity to know what the stiff, handsome, dowdily dressed wife was made of. "'We've been two months here,' said Catherine, her large grey eyes taking in her companion's very bare shoulders, the costly, fantastic dress, and the diamond flashing against the white skin. "'In what part?' "'In Bedford Square.' Lady Aubrey was silent. She had no ideas on the subject of Bedford Square to command. "'We are very central,' said Catherine, feeling desperately that she was doing Robert no credit at all, and anxious to talk if only something could be found to talk about. "'Oh, yes, you are near the theatres,' said the other indifferently. This was hardly an aspect of the matter which had yet occurred to Catherine. A flash of bitterness ran through her. Had they left their mule life to be near the theatres, and kept at arm's length by supercilious great ladies? "'We are very far from the park,' she answered with an effort. "'I wish we weren't, for my little girl's sake.' "'Oh, you have a little girl. How old?' Sixteen months. "'Oh, too young to be a nuisance yet. Mine are just old enough to be in everybody's way. Children are out of place in London.' "'I always wanted to leave mine in the country, but my husband objects,' said Lady Aubrey coolly. There was a certain piquancy in saying frank things to this stiff, Madonna-faced woman. Madame de Netteville, meanwhile, was keeping up a conversation in an undertone with young Evershed, who had come to sit on a stool beside her, and was gazing up at her with eyes of which the expression was perfectly understood by several persons present. The handsome, dissipated, ill-conditioned youth had been her slave and shadow for the last two years. His devotion now no longer amused her, and she was endeavouring to get rid of it, and of him. 
but the process was a difficult one, and took both time and finesse. She kept her eye, notwithstanding, on the newcomers whom the squire's introduction had brought to her that night. When the Ellesmeres rose to go, she said good-bye to Catherine with an excessive politeness, under which her poor guest, conscious of her own gaucherie during the evening, felt the touch of satire she was perhaps meant to feel. But when Catherine was well ahead, Madame de Netfield gave Robert one of her most brilliant smiles. "'Friday evening, Mr. Ellesmere. Always Fridays. You will remember?' The naivety of Robert's social view, and the mobility of his temper, made him easily responsive. He just enjoyed half an hour's brilliant talk with two or three of the keenest and most accomplished men in Europe. Catherine had slipped out of his sight, meanwhile, and the impression of their entree had been effaced. He made Madame de Netfield, therefore, a cordial, smiling reply, before his tall, slender form disappeared after that of his wife. "'Agreeable, rather an acquisition,' said Madame de Netfield to Lady Aubrey, with a light motion of the head towards Robert's retreating figure. "'But the wife! Good heavens! I hear Robert run over a grudge. I think he might have made it plain to those good people that I didn't want strange women at my Friday evenings.' Lady Aubrey laughed. "'No doubt she's a genius, or a saint, in mufti. She might be handsome, too, if someone would dress her.' Madame de Nitville shrugged her shoulders. "'Oh, life is not long enough to penetrate that kind of person,' she said. Meanwhile the person was driving homeward, very sad and ill at ease. She was vexed that she had not done better, and yet she was wounded by Robert's enjoyment. The Puritan in her blood was all aflame. As she sat looking into the motley lamp-lit night, she could have testified like any prophetess of old. Robert, meanwhile, his hand slipped into hers, was thinking of Vielant's talk, and of some racy stories of Berlin celebrities told by a young attaché who had joined their group. His lips were lightly smiling, his brow serene. But as he helped her down from the cab, and they stood in the hall together, he noticed the pale discomposure of her looks. Instantly the familiar dread and pain returned upon him. "'Did you like it, Catherine?' he asked her, with something like timidity, as they stood together by their bedroom fire. She sank into a low chair, and sat a moment staring at the blaze. He was startled by her look of suffering, and kneeling he put his arms tenderly round her. "'Oh, Robert! Robert!' she cried, falling on his neck. "'What is it?' he asked, kissing her hair. "'I seem all at sea,' she said in a choked voice, her face hidden. "'The old landmark's swallowed up. I'm always judging and condemning, always protesting. What am I that I should judge? But how—how can I help it?' She drew herself away from him, once more looking into the fire with drawn brows. "'Darling, the world is full of difference. Men and women take life in different ways. Don't be so sure yours is the only right one.' He spoke with a moved gentleness, taking her hand the while. "'This is the way. Walk ye in it,' she said presently, with strong, almost stern emphasis. "'Oh, those women and that talk! Hateful!' He rose, and looked down at her from the mantelpiece. Within him was a movement of impatience, repressed almost at once by the thought of that long night at Muirwall, when he vowed to himself to make amends and if that memory had not intervened, she would still have disarmed him wholly. 
"'Listen,' she said to him suddenly, her eyes kindling with a strange, childish pleasure. "'Do you hear the wind, the west wind? "'Do you remember how it used to shake the house, "'how it used to come sweeping through the trees and the wood-path? "'It must be trying the study window now, blowing the vine against it.' A yearning passion breathed through every feature. It seemed to him she saw nothing before her. Her longing soul was back in the old haunts, surrounded by the old loved forms and sounds. It went to his heart. He tried to soothe her with the tenderest words remorseful love could find. But the conflict of feeling—grief, rebellion, doubt, self-judgment—would not be soothed. And long after she had made him leave her, and he had fallen asleep, she knelt on, a white and rigid figure in the dying firelight, the wind shaking the old house, the eternal murmur of London booming outside. End of Book 5 Chapter 33